0: Here's to Paul Silas, former head coach of the Cleveland Cavaliers, an NBA legend who left a 50-year imprint on the game. Drafted in 1964, Paul Silas would dominate the hearts of fans and the glass for 16 NBA seasons. A two-time All-Star, a three-time NBA champion, Paul Silas would exit the game in 1980 and move immediately to the head coaching ranks. Guiding the Clippers from 1980 to 1983. While he lost a lot as a coach, he led the Clippers, the Cavs, the Hornets, and the Bobcats. I mean, come on. Garbage! He left us with hundreds of memorable moments, including this rant directed at Craig Sager about Eric Snow. Jesus, am I speaking Chinese? And his finest moment, the day that he stepped to a microphone in March of 2005 and called Carlos Boozer spell, i see you next Tuesday. What is, What does what is that mean? That's too much for me. Earmuffs, children. A cunt. That's what he is. Oh, with two hands! That'll bring the house down! Three on the way. Good! Garland spins down the lane and laid it in! This crowd has erupted. Welcome to Fear the Frog. A podcast covering the Cleveland Cavaliers and the NBA with the voice of Fox Sports Radio. Figure out a way to stop it. Listen and subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. Here it is. My favorite show. And now, your host. His name is Bob Schmidt. Yeah! Yeah! Welcome to the Fear the Fro podcast. I'm just going to offer up this disclaimer right out of the gate. I'm a bit worried that the feel-good point of this episode... Might be the Paul Silas cold open because speaking from the emotional just lost to the Spurs standpoint, shit is dark in Cavalier land at the moment. I sat on doing an episode this weekend after the Oklahoma City Thunder game because despite a victory, I was very disgruntled about the manner in which they did it. We had a second consecutive poor-ish game from Darius Garland. while although he he did have a decent stretch in the fourth, I thought, When he needed to pull it together for the Cavaliers to hold off the Thunder. Giving up a 17-5 run by the Thunder in the fourth quarter was nothing short of infuriating. For a team prone to Cavalanches, they are developing a new trend of being prone to whatever the reverse of a Cavalanche is. It just seems like a shit landslide. We saw several runs by the San Antonio Spurs, which were all instrumental in... Well, leading them to victory. The Cavaliers were down by 19 at one point. But in the first quarter alone, the Cavs gave up an 8-0 run to the Spurs. And then later in the same quarter, they gave up a 9-0 run. The second quarter didn't get any better. An 18-0 Spurs run. The game was tied at 37. Next thing you know, 53-37 Spurs. Now, a lot of that came due to second-chance points due to superior bench scoring by the San Antonio Spurs, and due to better-than-usual performances from guys who you would not expect to play as well as they did. This Spurs team played great tonight, and they made baskets that were incredibly well-contested. They made some clutch shots throughout the course of the game. That was a hell of a lot of heart, and there was a lot of pieces to like on this team. I am a big Charles Bassey fan. You had Josh Richardson chip in 13 points On 5 for 7 from the floor. You had Charles Bassey give you 6 points, 8 rebounds, and 4 offensive rebounds. 10 offensive boards in the first half for the Spurs. They're big men. For as unskilled as they may be offensively, they contributed 7 offensive rebounds between Bassey and Zach Collins. Now, it's not to say that the Cavaliers didn't have bright points. Let's get through some of the positives before we just... Digest what is the big story tonight, which unfortunately is Darius Garland's continued struggles. But let's focus on some of what I would call the bright points. First and foremost, Karis Levert, for the third game in a row, scored more than 20 points. And in the last three games, we have seen a return to form much more similar to what we got in the beginning of the year when Darius Garland was out of the lineup with the eye injury. Over the course of the last three games, he's averaging twenty-two points a game while putting up four rebounds and four assists. But more importantly, he's doing it with efficiency. 48% from the floor, 35% from three. Only four turnovers in that three-game stretch. So for him to be playing as well as he has been playing, you can't help but think at full strength, this is a team that should be putting it on some of these cellar-dweller squads. But instead, the pattern that we continually seem to see here with this Cleveland Cavalier team is you can't unlock Both Karras and Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland all at the same time. Can you unlock Mitchell and Levert? Well, absolutely. We've seen the double 41-point game. We saw that stretch where the Cavs won eight in a row, and that was mostly without Darius Garland. So those two certainly have been able to string together strong performances simultaneously. But what is exceptionally rare is to get a good game from Karras Levert on a night where Darius Garland, Also has a good game. And tonight was not Darius Garland's night. He was very inefficient from the floor. Which continues a stretch in this last six games where he has shot just 36% from the floor and below 29% from three-point land. Something that desperately needs to change. We need him to find his rhythm and get back into the groove that he was in when he first came back from the injury. It's not shocking to say that if Darius Garland has a bad game, it's tougher for the Cavs to win, but just look at the splits between how he plays in victories versus how he's performed in our losses. Darius Garland, I've felt throughout the course of the season that Jared Allen's presence has been the biggest indicator of whether we can truly blow open a game or if we're going to have to scrape by with victories. But Darius Garland, in the 11 wins the team has in games that he's played in this season, he's averaged 24 points, 9 assists, On 47-38-94 splits. Meanwhile, in the losses, the 11 losses he's been a part of this season, 19 points, 3 rebounds, 7 assists, on 38-39-79 splits. So nearly 10% worse from the floor, nearly 15% worse from the free throw stripe, and surprisingly slightly better from 3 in the losses. That did not carry over to tonight in his 1-for-6 shooting performance, but. For whatever reason, I don't know that there's much to be said about why he's struggling. Garland has been there with Mobley and Allen in the lineup, which has always done something to give him space to get off the mid-range and the floaters that he's usually so consistent at. But for whatever reason, whether he's frustrated with the lack of whistles he's able to get or the, the contact that he's hunting to try to get to the foul line in vain, Whatever the case may be, if you look at these last three games, Darius Garland did not go to the free throw stripe against the Sacramento Kings at all. Three for three from the line tonight, and all of those free throws came in the fourth quarter. Against the Oklahoma City Thunder, we saw him get to the line six times, which is pretty much his par for the course. That was his averages. He gets to the line nearly double in wins, which is I realize again, not a shocking stat, but we could have used those points tonight. In a game that came down to only one point, there definitely felt like there were points late in the game where he left trips to the line on the table because the refs just did not give him the contact whistles. One in particular, where he got out on a fast break, made it, and got trucked from behind. I thought that was a sure whistle, and they did not call it. And it's extra crushing that tonight, in the fourth quarter, at one point, the Cavs got into the bonus. And they were 15 for 15 from the free throw line. They finished the game 16 of 17. That one miss proved to be extra costly. They could have essentially had three looks to just score two points. And there was an incredible Keldon Johnson block that I didn't know he had it in him, honestly. I didn't think he was athletic enough to get to that Donovan Mitchell block, but he did. And he got to it before it got to the backboard. And it definitely was not on the way down yet. So uh, credit to him on an incredible block. Darius Garland, he didn't just miss the three-pointer from the corner after it got kicked out to him. He bricked that thing hard. And because of that, Donovan Mitchell got the offensive rebound. But he was basically pinned beyond the backboard at that point. Took a little contact, started to lose the ball. And then I thought what we saw from him was a flop because the Cavs were in the bonus. And I think he was hoping for a whistle And certainly a trip to the line at that point would have probably allowed the Cavs to prevail, but they did not deserve it because that was not a foul there. Now, that's not to say that I agreed with the whistles that much tonight. I thought it was a very tough whistle for both Darius Garland and Evan Mobley tonight. And don't even get me started on what happened in that play where Donovan Mitchell saved the ball and threw it off the back of Josh Richardson's leg. They initially called it Cavalier ball. But then before even forcing the Spurs to use a review to challenge it, in which they would have lost, they overturned the call, making the Cavs have to burn their challenge, which they won, clearly, because the video evidence was undisputable. Mitchell jumped while in the court. He was still in the air when he threw the ball off Richardson, who was standing out of bounds when it hit him in the back of the leg. It reminded me of the moment in the finals against the Warriors where LeBron, the block charge with Kevin Durant, where they called it a charge. And then when they went to the review, they overturned it for an unrelated penalty where they said, oh, well, we didn't review it about the block charge because that's illegal. We reviewed it to see if he was positioned in the circle, even though he was many, many feet outside the circle. And in the process of that, we've decided to overturn it on the block charge. That was a robbery which crushed the Cavs in that finals. And even though this is a low-state game against a regular season team, and in the grand scheme of things, it means nothing. If you make the call on the court that it's the Cavs ball, the fact that they overturned it, and it wasn't immediate. It wasn't like, oh, I pointed the wrong way. It was as if they rethought it and decided it was the Spurs ball. For them to use that challenge there, the Cavs won it. Great. But then they burned that challenge. Had another moment come up, only to have to waste it on a play which I thought was pretty obvious, even in full speed. But whatever, I'm just I'm pissed about a lot of things. Evan Mobley, especially in recent games, there is so much contact. And a lot of it's because he pump fakes to the point where you're like, oh God, you're going to get a three-second violation. you got to go up at some point. But he draws a lot of slaps and grabs and clutches, and he finished some of those baskets tonight. Tonight he finished with 17 and 13. For a long stretch of time, he was leading the team in assists with his four assists. And again, very good on the offensive glass. Four offensive boards for Mobley. Four for Mitchell. Three for Allen. Statistically, you can't look at the box score tonight and be upset with any one of that quartet of guys. Is quartet, is that right? Is that four? Quintet would be four. Yeah, so Mobley, Allen, Mitchell, and Levert. Now, I saw a fair amount of Lamar Stevens hate. He didn't score a point tonight. He had just three rebounds, but he didn't take a shot. Watching the game truthfully, I didn't think he was that bad, the way that the stats would indicate. If you just showed me that box score, I'd say, Jesus, he sucks. Get him off the floor. But I noticed one gigantic mistake from Osman, more than I noticed anything Stevens did tonight, which was getting burned on a backdoor by Doug McDermott. After which, we never saw him again. The next time out, he got yanked, and that was it for Chetty. And then Okoro, I said on Twitter at Fear the Fro Pod that I think this might be his best defensive game this year, and he did it without fouling a single time, which is very rare for him to be able to play as aggressive as he did and not even find himself on the wrong end of calls. Had three blocks and it would have been four, except they overturned one as a goaltend. These were emphatic, ridiculous blocks, smashing them off the backboard, catching guys from behind. These were highlight reel blocks without a single personal. Foul. Now, I have ridden Okoro throughout much of this season for one part of his game, which I've thought was somewhat overrated. I think that he's so aggressive sometimes that he gets tagged for whistles because he does not have the respect of the refs. They don't officiate him as if he's a lockdown defender, as if he's a Marcus Smart type or a defensive all NBA level guy. That level of aggression is only going to go uncalled for guys like Draymond, for guys like Marcus Smart. But tonight, He was able to alter a lot of shots. He played some passing lanes. I mean, five stocks, two steals, three blocks. It's pretty damn good. He missed all of his shots, but he only took two. Our bench. I mean, I think we can all agree that we need more production from the bench. Because to come out of a game where you got 28 from Mitchell, 23 from LeVert, 17 from Mobley, 16 from Allen, and every single one of those guys made more than 50% of their shots, It's unbelievable that you find yourself on the losing end of those games. But yet, here we are. And a large part of that is because you only got nine points out of the four guys that came in and played rotational support minutes in Love, Osman, Okoro, and Stevens. And seven of those came from Love. So two points from Osman, Okoro, and Stevens, that's not going to get it done. That's putting way too much pressure on your starters to play huge minutes and to not make mistakes. And quite frankly... We need more. We need more from... And Lopez didn't see the floor tonight, which I was a bit relieved, honestly. The game against the Thunder the other night, I know I didn't do a podcast then, but that was perhaps some of the worst basketball I've ever seen from him. He made mistake after mistake in the first half and was getting destroyed on defense. Just bad rotations, doubling guys and leaving your guy alone under the the rim fouling because you're a step too late letting guys get pie you to the basket and Shea has a lot of whistle baiting in his game but it certainly was one of those moments tonight where I didn't see him and I didn't feel bad about it despite the fact that we let that team get 10 offensive rebounds in the first half and maybe Lopez could have helped in that capacity these last three games have been rough I don't even want to talk about the Kings game in which they were up firmly in the fourth quarter and then let that 19 I I don't even believe it happened. There's a, I'm blocking certain things out of my, my consciousness, out of my ability to accept them. The idea that right now the Cavs are just a half game up on the Brooklyn Nets and that any moment that train wreck that is Kyrie Irving could find himself looking down in the standings at the Cleveland Cavaliers? No, it didn't happen. I'm going to take a page out of the, the Kyrie-Yay playbook, did, that doesn't exist. That didn't happen. It's factually inaccurate. Hold on, wait, let me do that. I can do this better. The nineteen O run didn't even happen. It's just factually incorrect. And he didn't kill 6 million Jews. That's just, like, factually incorrect. All right, and not to get off on a tangent, but what, what's an, a more embarrassing denial here? I heard this the other night. This is slightly off the calves topic for a moment. But when the Pelicans defeated the Suns, This weekend, Chris Paul was being booed, primarily because Chris Paul is a dickhead. But the Suns announcers, carrying water for their employer, I assume, Eddie Johnson, the color analyst on the Phoenix Suns broadcast, said the following when Chris Paul was being booed by the Pelicans What's wilder, that clip that I just played from Yay or this clip? I know you're going to say it has to be Yay, right? But just hold your opinion until you hear. This asinine comment from Eddie Johnson. They are booing, but they got a machine in here that kind of echoes the booze, okay? Right. trust me. This crowd is not as loud as it seems. and They're loud. I give them respect. They got a machine in here that's really working wonders, man. I'll tell you that right now. Because I'm looking at people's mouths and they're not saying anything. But yet, it's a lot of booze. So again, which seems more ludicrous at this point. Kanye's belief that the Holocaust didn't happen, or Eddie Johnson's belief that there aren't enough people that hate Chris Paul to form an audible boo. I'm starting to see slightly less distance between this Eddie Johnson and the Eddie Johnson who was arrested that... Okay, I should probably just stop this tangent. It didn't end up as funny. It more just sounds like I'm, I don't know, some sort of weird... Holocaust denier, or I'm condoning the sexual assault of children. That was not where this was meant to go. What would you need to see from Chris Paul to feel that the booze were warranted? Did you not catch his cheap shot elbow to Jose Alvarado? Or perhaps you've missed the several moments throughout his career where he's baited, or even the kickout on Zion where he was trying to cheat his way into a victory. Chris Paul is hateable. Ask Julius Hodge 20 years ago. He hated Chris Paul then. Nutshots in college. Come on, man. Eddie Johnson needs to just accept that. Amongst some of the more Now, he's not my most hated player, but I certainly understand why people hate him. I I think the only thing that diminished the possibility that he would rank amongst my most hated players is that he spent such a long portion of his career playing for underdog teams in the Hornets or, sorry, what would it have been at the time? Yeah, it was the New Orleans Hornets, right? And then the Los Angeles Clippers. The fact that he played with such traditionally garbage squads, it made me be like, okay, yeah, he's cheating, but he's cheating for a team which generally will never find itself getting the benefit of the doubt. It's like the whole concept of eye for an eye. Like, yes, you shouldn't murder someone, but if that person murdered someone else, I'm all about vigilante movies. But much to the chagrin of my wife, there's nothing I like more than a good revenge movie. Certainly the Clippers never get the benefit of the doubt in their own city amongst Lakers fans. They're just called perennial losers no matter what they do. And that'll be the case until they win a title, which I think is rough. I don't like it. I resent it as a person who roots for teams who are traditionally dog shit. So in that instance where the Clippers ended up with Chris Paul, it felt like a blow struck against the Lakers. And I liked that. So Chris Paul got partial credit. And he's chipped away at that with his constant dickheadery over the years, but he's not there at that point yet where I can lump him in with your Draymonds and your Jay Crowders and your Marcus Morrises, et cetera, et cetera. Now, if you wanted to vault him to the top of my player hate rankings, trade that piece of shit to the Raptors and then make me listen to all the Canadians tell me about how he's undervalued for six to eight months. And then I will want to see his whole family killed in some sort of murder-suicide. If that trade had happened which put him in Los Angeles on the Lakers. Oh, I would have loathed that guy. But anyway, to get back on the subject of the Cleveland Cavaliers, I've probably spoke enough about this Spurs game. It's a frustrating loss. I don't want to try to overanalyze too much why Garland is slumping. He he obviously is. It's supported by the data. It's supported by your eyeballs. But Mobley seems to be getting better and better. Another strong double-double from him. I think his offense has looked better in terms of him putting it on the floor from closer to the three-point line or even in transition, and using his dribble to work his way to his spots, that seems to be taking a step forward. And if he can just get a little bit better at getting whistles, and I don't think it's for lack of trying, I'm hoping that respect comes as his shot attempts go up. It's one thing for these refs to swallow their whistle when he's in those nights where he shoots less than 10 times. But his touches seem to be going up and maybe they'll go back down if the bench starts to contribute anything. But certainly, I think he's been progressing. The last three games, he's got double-digit attempts in all of them. I think Lavert has looked very good. And, and if we get to a point where Mitchell, Levert, and Garland all show up in one game, good luck. Those five guys, yeah, they can probably weather very little production from the bench if all five of them have a good game. But you don't want to have to ride your starters to that Extent. And I think as we get closer to the trade deadline and we head into the new year here, it will be worth monitoring what the Cavaliers can do options wise to see to maybe bolster their bench production with somebody who can perhaps be a little bit more consistent. Because it would be a luxury to have somebody who can show up and not just rely on the peaks and valleys of the guys like Osman and Love, who have been more valleys than peaks, unfortunately. As the seasons wore on, we came out of the gate very good to begin the year from the bench, but it has steadily fallen off now to the point where we're one of the lesser bench teams league wide. In fact, we're a bottom four team. Only the Sixers, the Heat, and the Blazers have been worse off the bench than we have. We have seen losses from the Celtics to the Golden State Warriors. We have seen losses by the Bucks recently. The Bucks were a team that I thought the Cavaliers might be able to track down over the course of this six or seven games that they were playing when they were going to get a bunch of them at home, but with losses to the Knicks, to the Kings, and now to the Spurs, they're three games back on the Bucks. That was an attainable goal to get to the second seed. And now they may find themselves battling to stay in the top half of the Eastern Conference if they can't figure out some way to turn around the consistency and efficiency Of the offense over the course of the next several games. Now, speaking of the next several games, two of the next three games, the Cavaliers will be taking on the Dallas Mavericks, a matchup which showcases the importance of Lamar Stevens. So, for everyone who's frustrated, I think it's very possible that you could be on the other end of that should the Cavs win. I would suspect that if the Cavaliers defeat the Mavericks, Stevens is going to play a big role in those games in helping to make life difficult for Luka. Nobody can stop Luka. He's been scoring like a madman. Another 38 points tonight. If Garland can shake off some of the rust, and if we get a good performance out of Stevens and can keep our bigs out of foul trouble, I think it's conceivable we can, in the next four games, take three of the games that we're, we're playing. I would expect to split with the Mavericks. I'm hopeful For a Cavalier victory over the Pacers, since that game is at home, this is the optimist in me. I think that the Cavs should win the game against the Pacers and the Jazz, despite the fact that both those teams who were expected to be trash-tanking teams have proven to be competitive and full of heart, similar to what we saw from the Spurs tonight. That was a team effort full of heart. If we get that from the Pacers and Jazz, it will be difficult. But I'm hoping that Donovan Mitchell will play an inspired game in front of a home crowd when he faces his old team in, well, basically a week from now. In the meantime, the Cavaliers have to get ready to take on this Mavericks team and one of the best players the league has to offer, and they'll do it twice. So with all these home games in front of us, six of the next seven games, the Cavaliers are at home, you could expect that your Christmas will hopefully be a good one with a lot of victories piled up. But looming on the horizon is an incredible Christmas week That will see the Cavaliers host the Raptors, followed by a game in which the Cavaliers host Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant, and the Nets. Those will be big games. The Raptors, because I hate them, and the Nets, because they've been catching us in the standings. They may have passed us by that point, or we may be trying to hold them off. Who knows? Put this one behind you, focus on what's ahead, and let's all agree that Chris Paul is a dickhead. Thank you for listening to the Fear the Fro podcast. I am Bob Schmidt. Please. Listen, subscribe, rate and review, all that stuff. I appreciate everyone who listens and everyone who shares the podcast. And we will be back with more on a holiday season, Fear the Fro. This has been Fear the Fro. If you like the show, subscribe and rate wherever you listen. Our guy, Bob Schmidt, always gets a reaction out of it. Join us next time for more Cavs and NBA coverage.